DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us for our show today. Um, We are really fortunate that uh, today um, we're going to be covering two very big national stories, uh, one very big national story, one very big state of Georgia story, and we happen to have uh, two panelists who are deeply involved in each of those stories. Um, So let's get started and talk about it. Um, We're joined by Tamar Hallerman, my partner on the show on Tuesdays. Um, Tamar, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and when I said we have a very big um, state story to cover, Tamar, you're down at the Fulton County Courthouse. Yesterday, late yesterday, you broke the news that Brian Kemp would be uh, testifying today in front of the special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And as we do the show live uh, in the nine o'clock hour on Tuesday morning, that's where you are right now. We assume that Brian Kemp has already gone in um, to the court uh, courthouse uh, tomorrow. Yes. Initially, as I, I arrived around 8.15 this morning, I saw a motorcade uh, coming in with, uh, you know, Fulton County sheriffs holding machine guns, multiple vans, sirens. I assume that was the governor. It turns out it wasn't. About 15 minutes ago, my colleague spotted a, a SUV being led into the garage and the governor sitting in the front seat of the, the car. So we know that he's in there. I'm expecting him to testify for multiple hours prosecutors and grand jurors have lots of questions they want to ask him about outreach from Trump and his campaign as they were trying to overturn uh, Georgia's elections in the aftermath of uh, November 2020. Well, we're going to go into that um, in more depth in a moment after I've introduced the rest of the panel. Meg Kennard, a politics and legal affairs reporter for Associated Press, you are part of a big, really important national political story. You um were part of the AP teams that uh, were doing data crunching on a number of races to determine uh, election calls. Arizona was one of your states, and last night AP, among other news organizations, called that much-watched governor's race for Katie Hobbs, Carrie Lake, the Trump election denier, has gone down, and you uh, were part of the team that watched all that that help put all that together. So welcome to the show today, Meg. Thank you, Bill. It's really good to be with you. And you're absolutely right. That Arizona governor's race is one that's drawn a lot of attention. AP was able to make that call last night along with others. So we've finally got a result here only a week after election day. So we made it. (laughs) Well, and we should point out you are also overseeing, you're watching to see when AP is going to be able to call whether Republicans, in fact, as many expect, have won a majority in the U.S. House. And that call is still to come, right? 
It is. Hopefully we'll be able to make that soon. A big part of what AP is doing this election cycle is explanatory journalism, kind of pulling back the curtain a bit into exactly what it is that helps us get the data together that enables us to make those calls. So I guess I lucked out this cycle with Arizona governor as well as House <laughs> Control, both of which are, are kind of coming here in the uh, the week following the actual election. Yeah, we'll get to uh, those stories in just a couple of minutes, too. Donna Lowry is back with us. She, of course, is the host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers. Um, Donna, thank you so much for being back with us today. Glad to be here. Great panel. So I'm excited to be here. And Adam Van Brimmer uh, is back with us. Adam, of course, is an opinion writer, an op-ed writer for the Savannah Morning News. Um, Adam, how are things down in Savannah today? Very good. We're finally in recovery mode from the election and getting ready for election part two, which we're going to talk about at length today. Uh, and we will talk about uh, the election and the, the runoff, and um, we'll talk about Trump's uh, potential impact on the election. You wrote a column on that the other day, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But tomorrow, let's uh, start with this big story in Georgia um, we know that uh, Fannie Willis has wanted to have Governor Kemp testify for some time now. Uh, Kemp's uh, people uh, tried to avoid the testimony. The best they were able to do was to get Judge Robert McBurney to agree to put it off until after the midterm elections. So now the midterm elections are over and uh, Governor Kemp is there this morning. W- what do they want to know from him tomorrow? All sorts of things The the prosecutor's office shared in a brief back in August as the governor was trying to, to fight his subpoena. They, they kind of laid out um, in, in the greatest deal we've or detail. We've seen what exactly they want to talk to, to Kemp about. And that included the contents of phone calls that he had with Trump and his associates. It included evidence that the Trump campaign provided in support of their theory that Georgia's election was rigged. Uh, they want to know whether Trump specifically sought a special election or other relief in the aftermath of November 2020 and any threats that might have been made against the governor. Um, so really, they want to go in depth about kind of any contact that was made between Trump and his campaign and the governor's office and just exactly any kind of pressure that, that he might have been under to uh, act in Trump's favor, which, as we know, the governor didn't end up doing. He said he didn't, you know, it was illegal and that anything he would have done would have ended in, ended up in endless litigation. Um, and of course, it's important to point out that um, unlike some of the other witnesses who've been called, uh, Brian Kemp is not there uh, because they suspect him of being involved in any any potential crimes. He's there to provide um, material witness testimony, right? Exactly. We don't expect him to be a target of the investigation or anything like that. Judge McBurney, who ended up delaying the governor's testimony until after the election, went as far to say, you know, Governor Kemp, if anything, you're the victim in all of this. Uh, but of course, the governor had political optics that he had to worry about in the lead up to the campaign. Initially, they wanted him to come in and testify less than 90 days before the election. Uh, his, his arch rival, Stacey Abrams, was starting to kind of develop this, this narrative on cable news that he was dodging testimony. And so uh, that's a, a big part of why he was, he was fighting his subpoena back then. But now that he's won a second term, he's a bit freer to say what he wants. At the same time, this is not something the governor's office wanted out. They weren't exactly forthcoming that he was coming to the, the grand jury today. I think the governor just wants to get it over with. Um, Adam, it, it's it's uh, 
particularly interesting timing, this story, the Kemp grand jury story, and the story, excuse me, about Kerry Lake now being declared the loser of that Arizona race, coming on the same day, basically, that Donald Trump, we're expecting, will announce that he is uh, running for president again. But Adam, um, there's a brand new report out that suggests that Trump is in extreme legal jeopardy uh, over what's happening with the Fulton County grand jury, that there are so many ways in which he is now vulnerable to criminal prosecution uh, here in the state of Georgia, Adam. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to to learn eventually what Kemp says uh, to the grand jury, because it, Kemp, obviously, before the election, did not want to. He did a masterful job of threading the needle in terms of Trump throughout this campaign is he basically defended his actions without really making a a uh, attacking attack former President Trump. And I think he was successful in in winning back or at least winning some back some of the Trump loyalists to get himself reelected. Now he's been reelected. He is term limited. So this is his this is his last term. So I think it really kind of frees him to to reveal maybe more than he has in the past. At the same time, he's going to have to make a political calculation on a night or on the same day that Trump is expected to launch a 2024 political bid. But as we've seen with Brian Kemp is he goes his own way, whether it was with uh, appointing Kelly Leffler or basically standing up and, and showing a tremendous amount of backbone after the 2020 election. And and then all the things he did in, in this session or this most recent session to to boost his reelection chances and to shore up support with the base. So it'll be interesting uh, when tomorrow can can dig out some details and share with us exactly what the governor says to the grand jury. Well, be, um, before we um, move on uh, and and talk more about the special election, uh, a runoff election here, uh, uh, let's talk more about the um, uh, grand jury again. Uh, Meg, uh, you're based in South Carolina. Uh, you know that uh, Lindsey Graham has lost uh, all of his appeals to avoid testifying in front of the uh, special grand jury. And so now we expect that that is going to uh, happen sometime relatively soon, right, Meg? That is something that we expect in the coming days. You're absolutely right that Senator Graham fought his testimony pretty much as far as he possibly could legally, something that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court for consideration. And he repeatedly lost those efforts. And so now we do expect to see Senator Graham finally coming before the grand jury. Exactly what he's going to say and how much he's willing to say, of course, that remains to be seen. We've seen in other circumstances where folks get called before these kinds of panels, and sometimes they just opt not to to say much at all, to take the to plead the fifth, um, to avoid saying anything that might incriminate themselves or perhaps being more forthcoming, as we've seen from other folks in the same investigation. So we do expect that we'll be hearing something from Lindsey Graham, but it is to be seen exactly when that happens and exactly what he's going to say. Um, Let's talk a little more about that tomorrow, and then Donna, I'll get you involved in this too. Tomorrow, um, uh, Lindsey Graham does have a certain amount of protection when he does testify, uh, because uh, the courts have said that uh, as a sitting member of Congress, <clears throat> he uh, he does have protections against talking about anything that involves his official 
duties, and um, that can be a pretty broad category for him as he uh, 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 tries to avoid answering some of the questions they ask him, right, Tamar? Absolutely. And Senator Graham, in all of his court filings, has made a very expansive argument about what's off limits. He says basically everything is an extension of his legislative duties. Of course, at the time when he called Secretary of State Raffensperger, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has a really wide jurisdiction. At the time, he was deciding whether he wanted to certify the Electoral College results. He also mentioned how he, uh, you know, eventually ended up sponsoring a reform to the Electoral Count Act. And so a lot of these conversations kind of helped inform that that legislation. So we could see him making a very expansive argument that certain questions are, are off limits. At the same time, we saw a federal judge rule and then the Supreme Court uphold that there are categories of questions politically motive or sorry, politically centered questions that can still be asked of him. Um, was he doing anything to cajole or pressure Fred Raffensperger, for, exa- for example? Yeah, uh, Donna, let's remind our listeners about Lindsey Graham's role in all this. Um, he did make phone calls to Brad Raffensperger. Uh, uh, he says he did it simply in his uh, judicial, in his legislative role, uh, uh, because he knew he would eventually a- have to uh, uh, certify uh, the election results in all the states. So he felt he just needed information. On the other hand, there's reason to think that perhaps. He also may have asked Raffensperger to look more carefully at absentee ballots to see if, in fact, they were legitimate or not. So uh, that's that's the whole reason he's being called to deal with that question. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and so far he's been able to hide behind his office. And as Meg said, he may be able to continue to do that. But I think the the whole idea of what what was what he may have to discuss when it comes to those absentee ballots um, will will be a, a key in all of this. And once again, we don't know whether he'll uh, actually say anything. I do want to get back to, to Governor Kemp, though, a little bit and and talk about the fact that, you know, one of the election deniers who still has the possibility of going before this uh, grand jury is the new incoming lieutenant governor, Burt Jones. And Burt Jones and the and Governor Kemp will have to work together under the Gold Dome. And we have yet to see how all of that is going to play out with um, with this with this grand jury hanging over everybody. And I, I, of course, we don't know whether that'll still be going on by in the next seven weeks or so. But it um, it makes for an interesting kind of play in the state with uh, those two people with Kemp still, you know, sticking with his the way he feels about the way the election went and um, really standing up to Trump. And then Burt Jones, who has been able to so far avoid going before the grand jury, uh, becoming a lieutenant governor last week in the election. All right, Tamar, let's take just a little sidestep to talk about where that stands right now. Burt Jones was one of the fake electors uh, who denied that uh, uh, the election had been won here by uh, Joe Biden. We know that Judge McBurney uh, said that Fannie Willis cannot, in fact, preside over testimony that he might give to a special grand jury because she threw a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, his opponent for lieutenant governor. We don't really know what's going to happen next with Burt Jones and whether some new DA um, will be assigned to this case. Where does that stand as long as Donna brought it up? 
Sure. Well, you have to remember that Burt Jones, along with the other 15 fake Republican electors, were all sent target letters by Fulton prosecutors mm -hmm. telling them that they could be charged as a result of this investigation. Um, that has effectively been overturned by this ruling from McBurney, that there was a conflict of interest mm -hmm. on Fonnie Willis's part. Uh, the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia has now been handed the power to appoint another DA's office if they see that as appropriate to investigate Burt Jones. But in the meantime, Bonnie Willis is not allowed to investigate him. She's not allowed to bring any charges against him or anything like that. And the head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council has indicated he's not in any hurry to appoint another prosecutor to look at Burt Jones. Um, to me, my read of it is that they might, in fact, be waiting for um, charges to be brought against the other fake electors uh, before they were to move on Burt Jones. They're being extremely cautious about how they proceed. All right. Um, so um, the special grand jury is cranked up again. Fannie Willis had said she was going to uh, suspend uh, her activities, uh, at least in terms of her public uh, facing on the activities, uh, in the weeks before the election. The election is now over, with the exception of the runoff. And now they're moving forward again with a lot expected to happen in the weeks ahead. And then eventually a final report in which that special grand jury is empowered, if it chooses to, to recommend uh, that indictments be brought uh, against uh, any of the people who were involved in this, although they themselves uh, cannot bring those ind indictments. That will be a decision made in the DA's office and, and, by, it, and by who tomorrow? Well, it, it ultimately is up to D.A. Willis about whether she wants to bring any charges, okay. but then she would have to present it before a regular grand jury. So not this right. group that's been right. meeting since May, because this current group does not have the power to issue indictments. Right. All right. Let's, uh, so let's move on from that. Let's talk about this big story that developed out of Arizona uh, for a couple minutes, and then we're going to bring all of this back to what's happening in terms of the runoff election between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. So, Meg, you've been deeply involved in watching the data crunchers at Associated Press as they've done their work in calling elections, and you've been responsible for helping the public understand how decisions were made. So, I think we all know that uh, Carrie Lake was one of the most uh, uh, high-profile pro-Trump election deniers running anywhere in the country. She was flamboyant. Um, as a former newscaster, she knew how to command a stage. She knew how to um, uh, make her image larger than life in many ways. There were people who said she'll be governor of Arizona and then be Trump's running mate in 2024. Meg, she lost last night by a slim margin to a very low-key Katie Hobbs, Secretary of State in Arizona. Um, talk to us a little bit about when AP called it and what's involved in that decision. Was it the late uh, votes that came in from Maricopa County, other smaller counties? Talk to us about that. A lot of the attention in Arizona statewide elections is always on Maricopa County. It's the largest in the state. It's home to more than half of Arizona's entire population. So it's not to say that however Maricopa votes is necessarily going to be the way that all of Arizona votes, but certainly a lot of attention and heft have to be given to the votes that are coming in from that county. 
there are, there are other large counties in Arizona population-wise. Pima is one that always has a lot of interest, as well as Pinal. So when we're looking at the votes of all 15 counties, those three are really the ones where a lot of focus comes in in terms of how are candidates performing there um, in these vote releases. The way it works in Arizona, and some of the reason why this continues to go on and on for days, is we would get a release of votes, sometimes more than one a day, but sometimes just once, a tranche of votes from each of these counties, and then we would analyze those to see how many of them favored which candidate who was winning the majority of, of those votes, since we're only talking about two candidates here. So that analysis was ongoing, and as we would see these votes coming in from different parts of Arizona, we always had to come back to Maricopa, to this biggest place where so many residents live in the Phoenix area. And there were also some voting issues of certain, you know, perhaps small degree, but some issues that did come up on election day, there were printing problems in some places where voters couldn't get their ballots to come out properly. Officials say that that was fixed, but that doesn't mean that politics didn't play into some of the candidate arguments around what exactly does that mean? You know, we're in a season of a lot of doubt in elections. And so that's part of the reason why on the Associated Press's part, we really wanted to do this explanatory work to show people these are the vote totals that have come in from these places. Here's a day-by-day -day timeline of exactly how much of a percentage each candidate was awarded in those totals. And it wasn't until last night when we finally got this release of votes um, from those areas that we were able to determine that of the votes that were still outstanding, that Carrie Lake wasn't going to be able to win enough of those remaining votes to overtake Katie Hobbs, who has had a lead in, in the most recent days. It's been 1.5% you know, around 1%. As of now, it's just under 1%. But still, of the remaining votes in Arizona, we looked at that and said, there's just not a path forward for Carrie Lake, and that's what ultimately led to our call for the Democrat in that race, Katie Hobbs. Yeah, it was interesting last night as those big voter dumps came in, uh, particularly from Maricopa, to see that, in fact, uh, Carrie Lake was making small advances on Katie Hobbs' lead. Um, and I suppose there were people out there who are skeptical about elections and how election calls are made who thought, wait a minute. Uh, Carrie Lake is moving closer and closer, but you make the most important point. It, what it really comes down to is, yes, she was making gains, but not big enough gains, not enough votes left to assure her that she'd get over the top. Adam, um, of course, it's not surprising. It's, it's troubling that Carrie Lake's first reaction to the calls from, <clears throat> excuse me, AP and other news organizations was a tweet, I think I'm paraphrasing, was essentially to say uh, Arizona, the people of Arizona know BS when they see it. We have yet to, to learn, uh, as the day gets going out in Arizona, how Carrie Lake and her people are going to react to all this, Adam. Yeah, that's an interesting tweet, because I think the, the people of Arizona do recognize BS when they see it, and that's why she lost. And her loss reflects what we saw across the country in battleground states, and that's if you are an election denier, that that's not going to fly. And it's Arizona is a microcosm, but we saw it. We saw it everywhere. I think that really gets to the point that this electorate is 
is not going to stand for that. I think it's going to be interesting in the coming days with Trump, we assume Trump getting in, what the reaction is going to be to Trump. Certainly, I think we've seen in the last week, we've heard rumblings that the party is ready to move on from Trump, which, quite frankly, the party should have done two years ago uh, in the wake of all the election fraud claims. And sooner or later, our politicians that have run on this on this on this big lie are going to kind of get it through their heads that this is not a winning argument. And if they expect to uh, have any kind of political future, they need to start focusing elsewhere. Yeah, Donna, I think uh, certainly I know from my my own uh, thinking about the election and how much I talked about this on the air, I was really waiting for this Katie Hobbs, uh, Kerry Lake election to be called because I, I think now that it has been, it's safe to say what we saw developing all along, which is uh, voters are fed up with uh, uh, outrageous claims of election fraud. They're fed up with election deniers. Uh, they may be fed up with the kind of rhetoric that uh, Trump inspired in candidates like a Kerry Lake. I mean, look, Trump is still incredibly popular among Republican voters. I, we got to be careful uh, not to write his epitaph qu- too quickly. But most of these election results suggested that voters may be turning the corner on uh, the Trump style uh, and and the way Trump has disrupted our democratic processes. Right. I mean, there were the few outliers like J.D. Vance in Ohio and those kinds of things. But for the most part, I, like you, felt that, that Arizona and Kerry Lake was um, a crucial part of finding out how people really felt about the Trump. And I think we found that out, you know, with this, uh, the fact that it, it, um, Hobbs was able to squeak through with that win. It is interesting that we find out the day before, supposedly, he, um, Trump is supposed to announce tonight whether or not he's getting into 2024 as uh, president. But he, um, you just got to wonder whether he's paying attention to all of this or ignoring it or and how the rest of the Republican Party is, is viewing all of this and whether they're going to, there's going to be an effort to kind of tamp down who he is for the party at this point. Finally, to finally, you know, you've had the, these uh, sections, these uh, people who have really focused, tried to pull the focus away from him, and yet he keeps get, getting pulled back in, and certainly with these midterms he was in a lot of the races. Uh, and certainly we're still dealing with that with Herschel Walker, who is, um, you know, good friends with Trump, who Trump encouraged to get involved in this election. So we still have um, that when it comes to the Senate runoff that's coming up. But certainly, um, I think what the because Kerry Lake was so good at being an outspoken uh, champion of Donald Trump, that what happened uh, in Arizona kind of should signal a lot to the, the people who've been holding on to who he um, to the to the notion of the big lie. Mara, I have to get to a break, but before I do, let's bring that back to Georgia for a moment. We had interestingly mixed results here in that respect in terms of uh, Trump uh, uh, allies and and those who were not allies of his. Now, uh, in some cases, uh, voters of this state already expressed themselves about the election deniers when they rejected David Perdue by a huge margin in his race against Kemp and Jody Heiss in his race against Brad Raffensperger. At the same time, uh, uh, Burt Jones was elected. Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected. So we we had sort of a mixed 
uh, a response to, to Trump and his enablers in our elections tomorrow? Yeah, something we saw is that our incumbents, for the most part, stayed put. Um, you know, we, we have Burt Jones coming in as our uh, lieutenant governor-elect. That was an open seat after Jeff Duncan uh, called it quits. We had Herschel Walker, who, of course, is challenging the, the Democratic incumbent, Raphael Warnock. Uh, but, we, you know, voters opted to keep who we had, um, even the ones who ended up rejecting all these entries from, from Trump and his supporters. So I think there's some continuity um, that, that Georgia voters uh, wanted and, and kept in place. And whereas, I mean, Herschel Walker, I think, is a little different just because he was such a hero to so many because of his role on the UGA football team. So I don't know how much I want to look into that or, you know, how much that's indicative of a trend on its own. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I, I guess I left off that big name, Herschel Walker, a, a very close ally of uh, Donald Trump's, although he didn't uh, call on him uh, to come to the state and uh, and help him try to get across the finish line uh, before a runoff had to be called. Let's get to our first break. The show we will be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Adam Van Brimmer of the Savannah Morning News, Donald Lowry, GPB TV, Tamar Hallerman, AJC, and Meg Kennard of the Associated Press join us uh, today. Um, Adam, let me start with you, if I might. We uh, do imagine that what Donald Trump is going to do tonight is announce that he's running for president again. And uh, we, we should talk about that in the context of what impact it could have on the Senate runoff here. And to start this, you wrote a column on this, Adam, and I want to give you a chance to uh, uh, share with us your thinking on this. But let me share what the Wall Street Journal wrote in an editorial uh, this morning. It speaks to some of what we've already talked about on the show today. Um, it, they, they start out by saying that they think that as president, there were many things that Donald Trump did that were uh, important and meaningful. Taxes and deregulation, they say, energy security, the judges they appointed, the Abraham Accords, uh, and others. But then they go on to say this, but his character flaws, narcissism, lack of self-control, abusive treatment of advisors, his puerile vendettas interfered with his successes. And then they say this, last week's election showed that clinging to 2020 election denial as Mr. Trump has is a loser's game. Republicans who took this line to win his endorsement nearly all lost. Country showed it wants to move on, but Mr. Trump refuses, perhaps because he can't admit to himself that he was a loser, and they say he'll carry all that baggage with him to 2024. Put that in the context of what that might mean in terms of motivating voters and which voters to come out in the runoff election, Adam? Sure. And the circumstances obviously have really shifted over the last week. The column you referenced that I wrote was was written the day after the election when it looked like that 
there was a, a pretty good chance that Republicans were going to win enough seats where the Georgia runoff would determine majority control. And I wrote at that point that I that I thought that with Donald Trump coming in, he would not be able to resist trying to champion and save the party by pushing Herschel Walker to victory, which would in turn, given the history we've seen in Georgia the last couple of elections, would finally give the Democrats and Raphael Warnock the, the power to fire up their voting base, which I think was a was a big was a big factor last week in in the Republicans sweeping every other every other statewide race. So now circumstances are different, right? Now it's not for majority control of the Senate. Um, Trump cannot. I guess Trump can still come out and really push for Herschel Walker hard and be able to say that, that that hey, as soon as he got into the race, the one thing he could really influence, he carried Herschel Walker to victory. But then it's all a matter of. What does what what kind of effect does that have? I think that there were a lot. I know there were a lot of folks that voted for Herschel Walker last week that held their nose and voted for Herschel Walker because of majority control. So are they going to be able to get those folks back out to vote for Herschel Walker again when they had reservations about Herschel Walker, but were more interested in Republicans in the Senate? And then the flip side of that is okay. So Democrats now, you know, we've got control of the. You know, if I'm a Democrat, we've got control of the of the Senate now. So why would I get out and vote? And it's really going to be interesting. This has been a turnout election from the very beginning. And here we are with one race left. And again, it's going to be about which party can get their base to turn out and vote on December the 6th. So um, Meg, uh, let's talk about those two factors. I'd love your take. One, (laughs) Trump getting into the race and whether or not he might motivate independence uh, uh, to want to come out and make sure that a Trump-backed candidate like Herschel Walker doesn't end up in the U.S. Senate. There's nothing like anger about Trump to get voters out to the polls to vote against him. There's that. And then, of course, as Adam pointed out, uh, control of the Senate is really no longer in question, although 51 senators uh, in, for the party is certainly more significant than 50 senators for the party. Meg? There's always, excuse me, a large conversation about the role of former President Donald Trump in these elections. And what is it really on behalf of candidates for whom he advocates, as well as the other side of the aisle, folks who may be running against those candidates? Adam's absolutely right, though, that this is not, while it is a high pressure runoff, it's not quite the same situation after the 2020 election, when everything was about those two Georgia races, those twin contests that really determined overall chamber control. But of course, there are going to be plenty of ads, plenty of campaign stump speeches, plenty of surrogates coming into Georgia, because certainly either party would love to see them notch this last win, either one extra seat for Democrats or Republicans maintaining the status quo that they have now. But, you know, voters seem to really in these races across the country have been, you know, giving somewhat of a telegraph that they're not exactly sure what role they want former President Trump to be playing. I heard from Mm -hmm. Republican officials in a variety of states ahead of the election saying, I respect the former president. If he runs again himself, I very well may support him, but I don't really need him coming into my state and telling me how to vote. 
I'm not saying those Republican officials necessarily picked a Democrat when it came down to the general election, but perhaps in primary races where a candidate supported by former President Trump was participating, they were a little bit more apt to maybe think outside of that Trump box and vote for somebody else. We will see today, later tonight, what he's going to say in terms of his own eventual election. But it will be very interesting to watch future races where former President Trump may be seeking to play a role, whether it's Georgia in a couple weeks or somewhere else in a different cycle, and continuing to hear from voters. Because as of these midterm elections, they really seem to sort of be at odds about where exactly they want him to be in all that. Donna? Yeah, I think that what we're... I think that the the pressure is off, but there still is this feeling that there there has to be um, the Democrats feel that that position is still very important. To, that getting that um, office, getting Warnock, keeping Warnock where he is is important. You know, there are so many things with that that could come up. I mean, we could see another Supreme Court nominee um, possibility in the next two years. We certainly know that judicial appointments are important. So I know the Democrats are going to want to hang on to that. They really are still pushing for this. Um, but we, we also have to realize that um, that having Trump come in may be, um, may be in their favor and that there's still like almost 20,000 people, I understand, who didn't even vote for one way or another for Senate because they didn't want it to um, vote for either one. And so I think there will be some Georgians out there who um, – who uh, were leaning um, probably toward wanting that Senate seat, but uh, are now, now that it's not as crucial um, as a Republic for Republicans may just decide, Hey, let's, uh, let's vote for Warnock. Uh, Tomorrow, I want to get you in. And then I know Adam, you want to join, but, but tomorrow you, you spent a lot of time covering the Hill. So you can help us understand why having 51 uh, seats uh, in the majority matters more than having 50. I mean, sure, it gives them greater, it gives Democrats greater room for error. And I mean, the, the perfect example, or at least it gives them wiggle room, that's a better way to describe it. The perfect example is the massive climate healthcare uh, package that that managed to pass this summer, but the Democrats had been struggling to move for, for months. If you'll remember, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema from Arizona were, were holdouts for a really long time, and it frustrated so many uh, voters around the country, supporters of the Democratic Party who are saying, why can't you do anything, Democrats? We, we gave you the keys to the kingdom in Washington. Why can't you do anything? Folks don't understand the subtleties of sometimes whipping and getting support behind bills. So this just gives them more breathing room uh, for, for Democrats to enact their priorities. Judicial uh, nominees is also another huge one. Again, give, again, giving them more room, especially if Republicans are able to get somebody like Joe Manchin in their corner. But that's something that's so hard to translate to voters. Um, I remember, you know, folks tune it out or, or they think it's too minute. Um, and, and so Democrats have their work cut out to them, convincing voters that how important this is, even though they've held on to the Senate. Uh, the other quick thing about this is that in a 50-50 Senate, there's a power sharing arrangement, which is right now in place, uh, that that uh, the Democrats still have control, but that power sharing uh, is helpful uh, to the minority power party tomorrow. 
Exactly, especially in committees, which which does a lot of the, the work before bills make it onto the floor. So it certainly just makes Democrats' lives a whole lot easier if they have that extra seat and just can move things through much faster than they've been able to these last two years. Adam? Yeah, I think the real trick here, though, is how to how to express that messaging, which I think Tamara was kind of hinting at. You know, we've got the holiday coming up. This thing is coming fast. And Warnock actually get that out there and, and convince Georgia voters that, hey, it really does make a difference. We know, historically speaking, that the Republicans are going to turn out in greater numbers than the Democrats, all things being equal in a runoff. But, you know, with this runoff, if the Democrats don't come out, and and quite possibly the same way they did two years ago for for Warnock and for John Ossoff, I think it's going to be a it's an uphill battle for the Democrats. They've got to figure out a way to get that message across that that Tamar is talking about, and also kind of convince folks of hey, do you really want Herschel Walker with all his uh, valuables representing you in in the Senate for the next year? All right, let's do this. Uh, I want to keep talking about the runoff, but I want to talk about it in terms of a dispute that has arisen over uh, Saturday voting in the runoff election. But before we do that, I've got to get to the final break of the show. I'll be back with more in a minute. Donna Lowry, uh, we know that the Secretary of State's office was celebrating the fact, for good reason, that uh, early voting uh, numbers were extraordinary in the midterm elections. And they were particularly happy about the fact that they've added weekend days for voting, which helped boost the totals. But now we have a controversy over the one Saturday uh, in this shortened runoff period, four-week runoff period, that uh, at first— Gabe Sterling of the Secretary of State's office said there would be voting on that Saturday before the election. But now let me read you uh, the uh, uh, problem that has arisen, Um, and I'd rather read it because it's a little complicated. Today, Raphael Warnock, in fact, is going to hold a news conference uh, to argue that the Secretary of State's decision that there won't be Saturday voting— Uh, is the result of a 2016 state law that banned Saturday voting within two days of a state or national holiday. Now, we used to have nine-week runoff periods, and so it was only when it was shortened to a four-week period in in SB uh, uh, 202 that that suddenly the Saturday that early voting would take place is too close to both Thanksgiving and a state holiday formerly known as Robert E. Lee Day, which comes right before that Saturday. And the law from 2016 says you can't have early voting on uh, the day after a holiday. Donna, I think I messed that up, but people will get it. <laughs> I, think, I, I think you got it right. It's, it, I think what um, what people are upset about is that it, it is not the Thanksgiving as much as this uh, former Robert E. Lee, holi- uh, Lee ho- birthday holiday that is now called a state holiday that's only for state employees, really. Um, and uh, I, I've talked to people in the last few days who are, have talked about this who feel that um, who didn't even know it existed, right? Because if, and I guess if you weren't a state 
uh, employee to really pay attention to it. But it certainly um, cuts off that Saturday voting and really cuts down on the number of days people can do early voting in this state. And and I think that's the thing that's at issue right here, uh, right now, is that we've got this shortened period of time. Of course, I don't think anybody's upset that we're not going nine weeks and we're listening to, um, we're dealing with a uh, runoff um, runoff ads all the way through uh, through Chris, Christmas this year and um, the first of the year. But um, having this shortened period that there should be more days allowed than just the five weekdays <clears throat> that are now on the calendar for voting. And so this this where I think this will be a um, a major issue in the next few days over this, especially with Warnock coming out talking about it today. Uh- yeah, Tamara, I think, uh, and by the way, I think the way I describe that is one reason or you know that I should have a script when I start talking about issues on the show. But Tamara, the, you can understand the Warnock people are upset because they believe early voting uh, favors uh, Democrats. And so this interpretation by the Secretary of State's office uh, will be challenged in court. Uh, they believe they have grounds to suggest uh, that the Secretary of State's office misinterpreted that 2016 law. Sure, and I mean, this leads to less flexibility for for their voters, and they're hoping to get anyone and everyone to come out. So if this limits options available to folks, especially working people, you know, who aren't able to easily take time off during the day, this this makes things a lot harder. And so they, of course, know how um, narrow some of these election results can be. So anything that can help them get their people out, any additional flexibility they're, they're banking will be helpful for Senator Warnock. Meg, the Secretary of State's office in their announcement uh, that they cannot, as they had initially hoped, have Saturday voting, they, uh, they use the term, it's black letter law. They believe there's no wiggle room at all on this. Yes, as everyone was just saying, it really does create a, a tricky situation, and it also posits the question, okay, well, is this a situation that perhaps someone should have seen coming when the law was changed to create this four-week window as opposed to the nine weeks that previously existed for runoff elections? Again, as with all things in politics, there's always something that happens that kind of increases the pressure, notches it up when, you know, when you're in this moment of trying to get the runoff together. But as Tamar was just noting, there is really going to be every single bit that both sides are trying to use to their advantage to get their voters out and to try to push their candidate over the finish line on December 6th. And of course, Adam, as Donna really pointed out, one of the reasons there's particular anger among Democrats is that the holiday that really uh, messes all of this up is a holiday that was, in fact, set to honor uh, the Confederacy, and uh, it was only in uh, his tenure as governor that Nathan Deal changed it to a, quote, state holiday. And so there's a lot of anger on the Democratic side about the fact that they're going to let a holiday to honor Confederates uh, interfere with letting people have their right to vote. Yeah, if you want to give people the day off, the day after Thanksgiving off, the day after Thanksgiving off, don't need to, to, to label it or do anything. It just it's somewhat. It's not somewhat. It's it's really ridiculous. And it uh, while it is hard to believe that they would not anticipate something like this happening, we got to remember that this omnibus bill that that resulted in this law was. If, I think they kind of they jammed as much in there as they could, and 
damn the torpedoes kind of approach to it. Uh, but at the same time, this is something that Democrats can further use to convince their voters to come out, right? They can say, hey, you know, look, they, they, this is another example of them trying to suppress the vote. And if Democrats play this right, they can certainly use this to drive turnout at the same time. Um, I want to try to get to a couple other stories quickly before we run out of time. One of them, Donna, is that uh, the Atlanta Press Club uh, has uh, issued invitations to Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker to debate um, next Monday, uh, which is, what, the 21st? Um, And uh, Warnock has said yes. They haven't heard from Herschel Walker before. Warnock has said uh, in response to that, I've already shown up in an Atlanta Press Club debate. By the way, he did not. He, meaning Walker, ought to answer the questions that are relevant to wanting to represent the people of Georgia in the United States Senate. So here we go again. Absolutely. So the Atlanta Press Club is, uh, and in anticipating that this might be a possibility, is, um, and, and I should say that I'm going to be one of the um, reporter panelists for that debate. Um, in anticipation of that, that there, that Warren Walker may not be a part of it, is the show will only be a, a, a half hour long and not an hour. And there will be that empty podium again. But I, I, you know, Walker was able to have the debate in Savannah, you know, leading up to the election on his terms. Uh, and, um, and this time he, um, and so it's not a surprise that because this is not on his terms that he may not, um, he not, may not be a part of this debate. And so this is something that Warnock can certainly play up about the fact that, uh, he, that Walker is not willing to debate again, but the Atlanta Press Club is uh, it's going to go ahead with it anyhow this coming Monday. I mean, I'm sorry, Monday, a week from Monday, I should say. Yeah, well, next Monday. No, um, Monday. Uh, uh, coming Monday. Yeah, I'm kind of confused yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. Meg, uh, we, a couple minutes on this one. Uh, the Republican conference meets today to elect leadership positions, but they don't know yet whether they have the majority. Uh, it, you're involved in AP looking at whether or not Republicans will win the majority. Where are you headed on that? What's the sense right now? Yeah, Republicans are not quite to the 218 member mark. That's what's needed for a majority in the U.S. House. And as it stands, they're at 217 and Democrats are at 205. But there are still races yet to be considered. Hopefully the Associated Press will have the data in the coming days to ascertain which party is going to have a majority. But this is due to a lot of things, one of which is there are still 10 races in California alone that have yet to be decided for a number of reasons. But one is counting is still ongoing, just like we saw in Arizona over the last couple of days in the governor's race. So Republicans are almost at the mark. They're on the cusp. They are not quite there yet. Do you hope that by the end of the day we'll know for sure? (laughs) <laughs> I think we all would like to put a pin in election 2022. <laughs> Clearly, the, the, the Georgia Senate runoff, notwithstanding, yes, it would be nice to be able to just have the House done with by the end of today. But we just don't know. We'll have to see what's in the data. Well, a couple quick things tomorrow. Number one, uh, that red wave certainly didn't uh, develop the way Republicans had hoped it would. But 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 tomorrow for you. We're going to be really interested. We hope by the end of the day today, maybe you'll glean something about what happened when Brian Kemp uh, talked to the grand jury. Yes. 
I mean, hopefully, but it's been really hard to to hear much of anything from the room in the when the, with this grand jury. Uh, the governor's office and other uh, witnesses have thrown a lot of shade and said that this has been a very leaky grand jury. I would strongly disagree. It's been extremely hard to get information coming yeah. out of that room. <laughs> well, I think the best we, we might do is how long he's in there. So we'll hopefully see well, updates on that from Mike Flynn in Florida okay. as well, fighting his subpoena. We are glad that you are there. Um, Tamar Hallerman, thank you uh, so much for being with us today. Adam Van Brimmer, Donna Lowry, Meg Kennard, thanks for a terrific show. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, get a flu shot, please, and maybe a booster for COVID while you're at it. Bye, everybody.